0: register at packexpointernational.com You're listening to Unpacked with PMMI, where we share the latest packaging and processing industry insights, research, and innovations to help you advance your business. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Unpacked with PMMI. I'm your host, Sean Riley. So this isn't a healthcare podcast per se, so it's probably important to note up front that something like the COVID-19 vaccine is the latest example of just how important packaging and processing are to society at large. That vaccine has to be developed, processed, packaged, and then placed in the very supply chains established by our industry. Thankfully, we have Karen Sukni director of editorial content at our own healthcare packaging magazine to take all of these big picture items and break them down in a way even I can understand. Sit back, relax, and have a listen. Welcome to the podcast, Karen.
1: Thanks for having me on today, Sean.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. And, and I'm glad to have you back for this um, topic because you're kind of our, our um, resident expert on these type of things. So I guess the first thing I need to ask, and I need to kind of get a handle on, because you see this in all the mainstream news or the regular news, and I, I don't know if everybody fully grasped it, but how big of a deal is it that the vaccine was available in such a short time?
1: That's a great question, um, and it's a huge deal. You know, when the news talks about that the United States is relatively slow to roll out you know, distribution, I think that we need to look at slow as a relative term. Um, in the grand scheme of things, this has just been an unbelievable effort by vaccine developers in all of history. Vaccine development has taken decades, in some cases over 50 years, in some cases a 100, some things, you know, we still don't have vaccines for. And there's a really great chart from our world and data that just really illustrates how short of a time frame we're truly looking at for, um, you know, developing this vaccine to have it not just developed, but through trials and in people's arms. When one year ago at this time, many of us, especially in the US, just truly didn't even understand threat at all. It's just, it's a really big deal.
0: Right. So I was thinking, so it's not, you know, hyperbole or whatever that, you know, this, we did this so fast because people like to say that, you know, this is, as you noted, there's, there still isn't vaccines for, and there's other things where, you know, takes decades or, or many years to come around on.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Okay, so let's say, um, you know, now we have the vaccine, it's here, the frontline workers are starting to get it, the people who are most at risk are starting to receive it. Frankly, you know, we're Americans, and we think it's weird that we're not already are getting it because we're the US and that's the way we think. And, you know, we should have this up and running better than anyone. But since we're looking at it, and and we don't really, I don't think you or I really want to delve into politics even a little bit. Nope. (laughs) um, Let's put that aside and just you know, agree that the distribution here hasn't been, you know, 100, as the kids like to say. So with that in mind, give me some examples of countries or, or other places where the vaccine distribution is going well as and could almost use as like a template of, you know, this is how you do this.
1: So I think one country that I want to point out, and you know, like you said, we're not going to sort of get into politics in terms of uh, geopolitics or healthcare politics. But um, as of this recording, I believe that it's kind of important to look at what Israel is doing. So I believe as of today, I think they've given the first dose out to just over 23 out of every 100 people in the total population. And um, that number, I think, is followed by the United Arab Emirates at 15 um, per 100 of the total population. And so, obviously, I think it's really important to acknowledge that that Israel is a much smaller country. It's smaller in population and geography. And so that is just going to naturally provide fewer logistical hurdles. You know, if you're not multiple plane rides away from your destination as a vaccine, you just have less to go through. But I do think that the example in Israel kind of speaks to what can be possible um, with a highly digitized healthcare system. Over there, they have forming HMOs that everyone in the population belongs to. And that basically makes it easier to trace who's received a first dose, who needs a second dose, um, and really just communicate with patients. And I think there is certainly a trust factor in, um, in the government in the healthcare system that really helps they worked on like public information campaigns early on to make sure that there was transparency there and that they could, you know, trust what they were receiving. And um, so I do think that that really highly centralized, you know, database and information really makes a difference compared to countries that generally have much more fragmented healthcare systems. Something else that's interesting about Israel that we might want to, you know, keep an eye on moving forward is that because they have the the centralized database, they're also following adverse events in a database. And so this may kind of bode well for post marketing surveys on, you know, effects, if there are any from from people who have received it. And so obviously, it's a huge concern, both in the medical and public sectors. When you <laughs> develop something quickly, people want to know about, you know, what are the adverse events? And so the fact that they have this really speedy um, traceability on, you know, if there are issues, um, it really kind of just sort of, as you said, you know, sets this this template for, for what other countries
0: can do. Now, I guess, forgive me for not knowing this, but is somewhere like Israel, is that government for lack of a better word, healthcare, or is it still privatized, I guess, as it is here?
1: That's a good question. Yeah, I actually am not an expert on that. So I'm not...
0: Well, I don't think there's a lot. I don't think we're gonna find a lot of experts (laughs) on Israeli healthcare on top of our head.
1: There are four HMOs, um, but I don't know if it's quite as nationalized as, say, like the UK.
0: Okay. The bigger thing then isn't even that that part so much is just that they have this centralized database. Right. And again, I'm not trying to stir a hornet's nest or anything. But is there what's the re- reason for not having that? Like, say here in the US?
1: I mean, I think it's it's partly political. Okay. It's also kind of like, gosh, who would start that up? And you know, we have 50 different states too, where we're not just like this country.
0: Right, right. No, that and that's, that's not a political answer. I mean, that that's fair to say. Like, that makes sense. Okay, because we're so, just so massive and there's so many different states doing different things that there's not a, a centralized... Is it even a, a matter of we just have so much on paper from so many years
1: I do think that that is still definitely an issue. I know that we don't have the most digital health records out of all countries in the world. And so I I think that certainly plays a role. One other thing is that because in Israel, there are just, you know, these four health systems, they feed their data um, into the Ministry of Health. So the Ministry of Health, you know, has this has all the information for the country on, you know, how many, how many cases there are and things like that. And so while we do kind of, I mean, we we do have a CDC, um, Mm -hmm. HHS here, of course, and, you know, we do have data. But at the same time, I think that the fact that it's just kind of all of their data is feeding from basically four sources, right? completely different situation here in the US. And so
0: that's very interesting. Okay, what about some of the, you know, most unexpected news that you've come across as part of this? I know we've kind of touched offline in discussions previously that have not been on the pod where I know that like food cold storage has kind of learned from healthcare previously. Has there been anything maybe where food storage has kind of helped out during this or helped healthcare in general during the vaccine rollout?
1: yeah yeah so um i think you might have even asked me this when i was first on the podcast in the summer and i didn't have a great answer for you yet without a you know sort of commercialized vaccine but we were talking about you know what what sort of crossover is there how can foods in essence kind of help um this vaccine situation and there's actually a a pretty cool consumer facing article from popular science back in december you know talking about what is you know the ice cream company dip and dots how can pharma basically learn from their cold chain. So if listeners don't know, Dippin' Dots is those fun little ice cream dots that you get at like baseball games and amusement uh-huh. parks and stuff like that. So they ship their products at minus 45 Celsius. And so even though, you know, pharma has also shipped a very cold, um, I just think it's interesting to see that dip and dots kind of can can help people understand the vaccine and sort of show in essence right way to go about it just because they have established protocols. So, you know, they're very well versed in monitoring the dry ice supply, which is something that, you know, is a concern. Um, We've seen dry ice shortages already kind of take place or people at least be concerned about it. Also, Working with dry ice, you know, you're you have to make sure that your workers are safe. And so they have these established protocols for Okay. workers who are, you know, making sure that the pack out is safe and anyone interacting the product, was safe, and they monitor so that if, you know, a shipment is en route, and the dry ice is going to run out, they have a third party that comes in and intercepts and adds dry ice, which is something that, you know, the pharma industry has, has been doing as well. I think also what's kind of interesting is that at least from what I've seen, they've sold two of their and Dots freezers specifically for vaccine efforts. So that's not, really? yeah, that's not like a ton because as the article pointed out, there's kind of issues where usually they, these people might want to lease them. They're not going to need these you know, super cold freezers forever. It's just kind of for this vaccine effort. And so there's kind of actually a little bit more hurdles on the on the business side. And, you know, what do we do with this freezer after when it comes back and it's held vaccines? We don't want to right. necessarily put ice cream in it. And so. Um,
0: <laughs> no, probably not.
1: Yeah. But I just think it's interesting that, you know, Diffin' Dots has its role to play in um, in public health in America. <laughs>
0: Yeah, who we'd be talking about dipping dots, but while we're we're there, um, I guess let's pump up our industry, you know, a little bit in terms of how has, you know, the healthcare supplier industry and the packaging industry and the processing industry, have they done anything, you know, supplier wise to kind of step up this year to help out with these efforts?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I don't wanna sort of snub anyone because I feel like nearly everybody in this industry has mm-hmm really basically stepped up in some way. There's been tons of over time and manufacturing and really just pivoting with you know changing up machines and things like that but um i know that a lot or several companies anyway have really made strides this year i know cold chain technologies and afina have recently opened new facilities with cold chain storage and pelican has has expanded its um deep frozen line of of shippers to meet the needs of of these ultra cold products sort of on the side of this um life foam was just awarded patents for its bio based alternative to traditional APS packaging, you know, styrofoam. And so Mm -hmm. I just think that one is interesting, not so much specifically for, you know, COVID, but at the same time, when we talk about how much the entire pharma cold chain is, you know, stepping up to meet these needs, we also have to think about how even if you're not personally shipping vaccines, your cold chain is being affected, because there's really only so much capacity for cold chain storage, packaging, shipment. And so, you know, you really have to look ahead and plan out to ensure that your product is still going to get, you know, its spot on on those trucks and planes and, and, you know, have the packaging that it needs. And so I just think that one is cool um, for basically to see that we're seeing cold chain packaging coming from renewable materials now, which, you know, will just kind of help um, the supply of packaging moving forward down the line.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of thinking, again, that that's things that people even in our industry might not think of. Like I know outside the industry that, you know, packaging and processing aren't really thought of, people don't really give much of a thought of. And then as this pandemic has unfolded, we've kind of realized how essential, um, you know, food packaging, all of that stuff has been. But I guess that even I'm sitting here thinking like I'm not taking into consideration that this has to be even in a box and it has to be, you know, have styrofoam type things to, to keep these vials. You know, it needs to have vials. It needs to have all those things, which weren't things that were being budgeted for. Like they, they weren't setting aside. We're going to need all these vials for a vaccine because, again, a year ago, we didn't know any of this was happening
1: absolutely all that supply has to come from somewhere i mean even down to this is just my own personal conjecture but i was curious about like at what point you know needing vials and needing glass you know could that ever affect our wine and beer industry <laughs> you know we we need to make sure that our citizens are adequately supplied with best-
0: yes these are very trying times and people need to relax so i agree that's a very good point
1: absolutely and um that kind of reminds me of another story that we covered basically a company named bsp who basically they were they were supposed to receive um, a machine from Winpack lane but they actually let a company go ahead of them in line to receive a machine because that company needed to produce refrigerant mats for um, COVID-19 vaccine shipments in a hurry. And so I just kind of thought that was nice to see that companies are willing to step aside and say, you know, yeah, we'll put off our needs because public health needs those refrigerant mats. And I'm sure there's probably so many stories like that under under the surface that are just happening every day where people are um, making decisions that help others and help public health in this global fight.
0: Definitely need to hear that at times like this when everybody isn't necessarily being so nice to each other that other people um, are um, pitching in and making sure that everybody's kind of on the same side as we're all sort of fighting through that. So I guess once it arrived, and obviously there's going to be hiccups, Um, what has had to change or kind of evolved once it hit the supply chain? Like what things worked or didn't work? Or did they realize what you know, things that had to adapt on the fly? Could you kind of put some perspective around that?
1: I think one of the really sort of interesting things that we've seen in the last couple weeks is just both on sort of a big and a small scale. Um, people are moving ahead with doling out as many of the first dose as possible instead of holding on to the second dose on reserve for you know someone who already received round one. So you know, on the one hand, it's just kind of I I um, learned of a very small clinic by me and in, um, in uh, LA where you know, this doctor is just on a mission to get as many first doses out to as many healthcare workers as possible, you know, because he's really worried about the healthcare workforce in LA, especially in hotspots. And so, you know, in some cases, these clinics are making decisions where they say it's better to get more people to that 80% level than to have, you know, half that number, say, at at that 96% confidence level. But then, you know, on the flip side of that sort of, I don't want to say dire, because I think it's really smart thinking. But you know, that's, Mm-hmm. looking at it that way versus um, I know that sort of on a grander scale, there are countries and I believe Operation Warp Speed may have been an initiative under under them as well to say, let's go ahead and give out as many first doses as possible, because we have confidence that that second dose will be there in the three weeks when it's needed. And so you know, you see it from kind of two sides. It's just like, you know, on the one hand, this clinician is just like, well, okay, if the second dose isn't available, at least we got you to 80. And then on the other side, you see, you know, operation more speed saying, hey, we're sure that this second dose is going to come. And so we have a lot of confidence in our supply chain. And so go ahead with that first dose, because we got you in three weeks when that next dose is needed. <laughs> and also something that we're seeing in terms of the supply chain, um, especially what we saw in spring with hotspots, our um, drug shortages. And so There have been efforts by quick-thinking pharmacists and organizations like Civica Rx who are working really hard to ensure the supply of these drugs that are used to help treat the effects of COVID-19, drugs that help people on ventilators. And so I think that these organizations and health systems have learned so much from the situation in spring and summer and have really um, sort of taken those lessons learned and tried to get to a place before this winter surge where there weren't. Going to be as many drug shortages, especially for very necessary but low cost drugs that we've seen shortages of in the past as well. So um, I just wanted to kind of acknowledge those efforts and in, in making sure that patients have what they need, even when there are these these big surges.
0: Absolutely, I'm sitting here while we're talking, and I'm realizing that as we keep saying that it was so quick, and it's it's such a massive. Thing that's happening and and it has such an an effect and ramifications on the supply chain. It it even makes me think of you know e-commerce exploded in the last year because we're all ordering from home. But then, as people realized around the holidays that you know the post office and UPS and FedEx just they had never dealt with such large amounts that like they couldn't deal with the dramatic increase as it taxed their supply chain. And I but there has to be some negative effects that this vaccine is having on the cold supply chain that we use. I know you and I have talked about some, but is there some that you could share with us? Again, we're not trying to be dire, but like things that have obviously had to be affected by this, where things had to be sacrificed kind of to make for for this cold supply chain to work in order to vaccinate so many people.
1: There is something, yeah, that I, I did want to talk about. I guess I wouldn't say that this is necessarily the fault of the vaccine, but more of sort of like just a, a natural effect of, of this pandemic. I don't want to say this lightly at all. I know we tend to have more jovial Mm -hmm. Feature on this podcast but this is you know obviously a very serious thing but part of the life science cold chain's responsibility is to safely move people who have suffered fatalities and you know as we've seen their hot spots um particularly i believe in the midwest where they have exceeded their capacity of refrigerated storage and and trucks and so um i know that i believe it was acela has chain suppliers have retrofitted trailers that can be pulled by an SUV or a pickup. So you, you don't need these specialized trucks in order to ensure that people are, are getting where they need to go in a safe manner that's, you know, not a public health risk, and just doesn't delay their storage or transportation. And so I just it just points to, you know, the, the really dire and, and serious nature of, of, you know, what we're all going through. And sort of as they're referred to the last responders, you know, morticians and things like that. You know, they are <laughs> dealing with something they've never dealt with in their lives. They're completely overwhelmed by just the sheer volume of people, and so um, yeah, it's important to acknowledge that that is also a piece of the cold chain that's that's being affected and, and stretched to its its capacity. And you know, it's I, I really feel for for everybody who's working in healthcare and those last responders um, because you know it's got to be really trying.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a piece of the puzzle, again, that, that you don't think about it. And yeah, it's, it's, it is mind boggling. Um, well, I've already taken more time than I could have ever imagined, um, but it, we felt this was really a, an important issue. And so we really, really appreciate the time you've taken out of your day to kind of come on here and, and touch on, you know, two pretty big topics that everybody doesn't have a lot of knowledge on that you've been able to come on here and share with uh, our listeners. So we really thank you for that, Karen.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. It's always great to talk to you, Sean.
0: (laughs) Please rate, review, and subscribe. To do that, go to the iTunes podcast or Spotify app on your phone and search for Unpacked with PMMI.